Yeah, thanks. Thanks, you guys. It's always great to be here. As he mentioned, my name is John Alexander. My wife Emily spoke last week. I'm speaking this week. I think Jeremiah's next week. So it's just all kind of going downhill the rest of the summer here. It's just kind of like, well, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I love Jeremiah. I love your pastors. I love this church. Now, maybe this is too simple, but oftentimes the world is divided into two kinds of people. There are, you know, for example, campers, those who love the tent or sleeping outdoors. There are glampers, those who consider camping to stay in a cabin with AC and, you know, all those things. There are cat people and there are dog people. There are cash people, Bitcoin people. There are those with zero emails in their inbox and those with 10,567 unread emails. You total psycho, what's wrong with you? <laughs> there are vegans and carnivores. Uh, seriously, two of my really good friends are one of each, one who swears eating meat is gonna kill you and the other who swears eating meat is the only way to a healthy life. We know that guy's right. Now, while those really don't matter in the scheme of things, there are indeed two types of people who have a particular disposition, a leaning, a, a way they see the world, and it's those who see the glass half empty versus those who see the glass half full. It's those who immediately see what's wrong, what's missing, or what the problem is versus really those who see what's right, what's there, or what the potential is. It's the pessimist and cynic versus the optimist. Now, pe pessimism and cynicism, um, they're close cousins. I know they don't mean the exact same thing, but I'm using them somewhat interchangeably because both stand opposite to optimism. Now, in preparation for this message, earlier this summer, I read a great book called Why Do I Do What I Don't Want to Do by Pastor J.P. Pacluda, and I owe a ton of credit to him because of how a few of the chapters impacted me personally and shape this message because the truth is the way we navigate any situation will be determined by whether we view it through a pessimistic or an optimistic perspective based on God's word. Now, not speaking of God's word, it's like the old Debbie Downer skits on Saturday Night Live. You guys remember these? The premise was fairly simple. Debbie, played by Rachel Dratch, would appear in these different social settings, such as a dinner at Disney World or some family party. And Debbie would interrupt these joy-filled conversations with negative declarations, stories or facts that were depressing. For example, one skit that I rewatched uh, while these characters were sitting around at Disney World, the characters around the table excitedly said things like, I'm so excited to go on Space Mountain. I can't wait to go to the Country Bear Jamboree. I'm gonna go to every country in Epcot and say hi in their native language. As they're all high-fiving with excitement, Debbie Downer interrupts and says, did you guys hear about that train explosion in North Korea? They may never know how many people perish because of how secretive the media is. And what made Debbie so funny wasn't just the trombone or these funny facial expressions that would play after her negative declarations. What made her funny was that people could relate because the truth is we all know a Debbie Downer, somebody who always gives the reason why things aren't going to work out, why the situation is worse than you think or why the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And sadly, maybe that person well, at least at times, as I've been thinking about this the last couple months, that, that person at times is, well, it's me. And perhaps 
Maybe it's you. Because this is one of those things that's, that's really easy to see in someone else, but it's much more difficult to recognize when it's us. That's why we laugh nervously at characters like Debbie Downers, because unfortunately, we can be that person. Now, what does it mean to be cynical and pessimistic? Well, it's to have a general distrust of others. It's a negative outlook on the situation. It's a lack of faith or hope, and it's concerned only with one's own interests. See why cynicism and pessimism can destroy so much? I mean, who wants to be friends with someone who never trusts them or only sees the worst in every situation? Who wants to promote someone who never shows interest in others or, or ever sees the silver lining? See, this kind of perspective destroys hope. It negatively affects our relationship with others and most importantly, negatively affects our relationship with God perhaps more than we realize. On the other hand, what does it mean to be optimistic? Well, it's to have a general trust of others. It's to have a positive outlook on the situation. It's to be full of faith, to be full of hope, and it's to value others above themselves. Now, if there are indeed two types of people in the world, what type of person would you most want to be around? What type of person do you think God is most inclined to use? Now, full confession, earlier this year, around February or March, I, I, I was living with so much pessimism. Everything seemed terrible. Now, maybe it was the winter blues and it was nearing the end of that winter season, but I went through a season where, where more often than not, I saw the worst in people. I obsessed constantly about what could be better, and I talked more about what was wrong in my life and my circumstances than what was right. And as a husband, a father, a pastor, and a leader, my cynicism was not only weighing myself down, but it was weighing the people down around me. But see, what I've come to realize and learn over the last several months is that it's really not the circumstances that determine whether we live pessimistically or optimistically. No, it's based on whether we choose to see the world through God's perspective or our own. Now, by the way, living with optimism is different than happiness. This isn't one of those messages like just be happy type of things. No, as one pastor said, happiness, happiness depends on the happenings. Twins win, happy. Twins lose, fire Rocco. Lose 10 pounds, happy, not like what you see in the mirror, unhappy, you get it. But optimism is not based on happenings or circumstances. And optimism is also different than being an idealist. Because I know some people are already objecting to this message and, and thinking, John, I see the glass half empty because, because I'm a realist. I live in reality. I've lived too long. The world is only getting worse. We continue to get old. Have you seen my wrinkles? Then we all die. What's there to be optimistic about? I'm just, I'm just being real. Now, let me be crystal clear. Being an optimist doesn't mean we're supposed to deny reality or that we live with some idealistic, naive worldview. For example, if something difficult or, or uh, painful happens, we don't have to pretend like we're happy about it. This and anger are not the opposite of optimism. Instead, here's, 
here's what I think living with optimism is like. It's like searching for that clear view while driving in the middle of a snowstorm. No, no one wants to be driving in a snowstorm, but if forced to, we lean forward. We scrape off the snow and ice. We turn on our lights. We, we grip the wheel a little tighter. We adjust our wipers onto high and we move with hope that there's better weather, better roads and a final destination ahead that we will get home safe and sound eventually. See, optimism is seeing the hope and potential in any and every circumstance. With that being said, there's really no better example of living with an optimistic perspective in the middle of extremely difficult circumstances than the Apostle Paul. Now we're gonna look more specifically at the letter he wrote to the church in Philippi called Philippians found in the New Testament. And we're gonna do a general overview of this entire letter, this entire book. He starts off by saying this in chapter one, verse three, I always pray with joy. And you're like, always Paul, really? With joy? Now, mind you, to give some context, Paul wrote this letter from a Roman prison around 62 AD. And how did he get there? Well, a couple of years prior, he'd been doing ministry in Jerusalem, but was falsely accused and arrested. He was then taken to Caesarea, where he stood before several trials, and, and really those trials never resolved. So after appealing his case to Caesar, as a Roman citizen, Paul was put on a ship to Rome as a prisoner. But on his way there, that ship sunk. Fortunately, even as a prisoner, Paul didn't drown, but he eventually made it to Rome on another ship and there he found himself in prison. Now what's interesting is that Paul always dreamed of a day that he could go to Rome and preach the gospel. Rome was the cultural epicenter of the Western world at that time and Paul wanted nothing more than for Christianity to take hold in Rome and then spread out from there. But instead of getting to Rome on his own accord as a preacher, Paul arrived as a prisoner. See, God got him to Rome, but not in the way that he envisioned. And then while awaiting trial, sitting in that prison, he had no idea which way the circumstances would fall. He knew he was gonna face trial, but it was 50-50 whether he'd be acquitted or beheaded. In the meantime, Paul is chained 24 hours a day to a Roman soldier. Now, typically these soldiers would rotate once every six hours. And so Paul would be chained next to these four guys, one every six hours, all day every day. And yet, despite these circumstances, Paul wrote this book that we now have called Philippians, which every theologian and scholar agrees has one major theme, and that's joy and optimism for life. Imprisoned and facing trial, no way of knowing how his life was going to turn out from this moment. How could someone live with such optimism and hope? Today, I wanna to title this message, Defiant Optimism, because I think it takes a level of defiance to live optimistically. It's just easier to live pessimistically or cynically. In my personal experience, it's like, it's like hopping in the lazy river. 
You know, the drift, the current, the flow of the news cycles and social media is negativity and cynicism. The world is terrible. Everything is terrible. Nothing is gonna get better. It also, for whatever reason, tends to be somewhat of our natural disposition. Maybe, especially the older we get and, and the more real life we live. See, to live optimistically requires some defiance. It's like swimming upstream or going against the current. But it's with that kind of hope and defiant optimism that I believe God calls us to live. So today, based on Paul's letter to the Philippians, I'd love to get us all asking four questions to live with more defiant optimism. What's the first question? The first question is this, what good, what good can God bring from this? Now remember, Paul had plans. He intended to go to Rome on his own as a preacher. Instead, God sent him as a prisoner. <laughs> Let me ask you, has there ever been a time that God took you in a direction or maybe allowed circumstances to happen in your life that you never expected? I mean, if you've lived any life at all, I'm sure that there have been. Maybe, for example, you've hoped to have been married by now. It hasn't worked out that way, and so you're learning to enjoy life as a single person. Maybe your career hasn't gone the direction that you had hoped. Maybe you thought you'd feel better after fill in the blank, any kind of thing. But God seems to have detoured those plans once again, and now you're sitting there left wondering, how could God bring any good from this? Well, look what Paul writes in chapter one, verses 12 through 14. He says this, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, again, he's in jail in, in Rome, chained to soldiers, waiting trial. What has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, if we pause for just a moment and think about what Paul's writing, this passage is incredible. Because despite being in chains, he now sees that he's in chains for Christ. Prisoners are coming to faith in Jesus. Soldiers are coming to faith in Christ. People outside the walls, people who are a part of the many churches that Paul's helped establish are now reaching more people for Christ because of Paul's bold faith. Paul isn't stuck or languishing in chains, bumming about his present circumstances. No, he's in, he's in chains for Christ. And because of those chains, God is doing a good work, a better work, even better than Paul could have imagined. As he said, his chains actually served to advance the gospel. So maybe the question isn't, how could God ever bring something good from this? No, maybe the question is with, with a hopeful lean, with some vision, what, what good? could God bring from this? Maybe this feels cliche, but, but kids really do see the best of everything. They're just inherently born with an ability to see a world of creative possibility and potential. 
My daughter, Marley, who's now eight, sees potential in boxes and packages and garbage. I mean, just all shapes and sizes. If you buy her a gift, she likes the gift, but she really wants to keep the box. She's always trying to salvage some sort of garbage to use for something else. Well, just last week, I bought her some cotton candy after a soccer game. She was playing hard, and I just think all little kids should get cotton candy after sporting events. But when she was done with the cotton candy, she wanted to save that nasty little cardboard cone that the cotton candy came on. Why? Because she said she could use it as a telescope. Now, as parents, while we spend most of our time secretly throwing away all the garbage that she's hoarded, don't tell her, I also know, I also know that someday Marley will, she'll grow up and no longer see the potential in everything like she does now. Someday, over time, she'll experience enough negativity and circumstances that she'll lose her easy ability to see the good in everything. And unfortunately, that can happen with all of us. Over time, with every negative thing that happens and in this life, bad things will happen. Our hearts have the potential to harden a bit. We become a little more cynical. Over time, it becomes more and more difficult to see the good that God can bring. Now notice I keep saying that God is gonna bring the good. See, what if the good that we're trying to find is really not ultimately up to us? And instead, what if God is working to bring good in any and every circumstance and our job is to find it. Paul is so confident that God is bringing good in every situation and for every person that he writes these words, he who began a good work in you, he who began a good work in you will do what? Will carry it on to completion. It's still happening. God's working for the good until the day of Christ Jesus. In another verse, Romans 8, 28, Paul writes, we know that in all things, God works for the good, those who love him. And I understand that maybe this morning you have a hard time believing that anything good could ever come from your situation. But if Paul can see his situation is not just being in chains, but being in chains for Christ, then maybe God can help you see the good he wants to bring in your life and your situation as well. What good could God bring? Go find it. Second question to ask to live a life of defiant optimism is to ask this question, where is God working right now? Look what Paul continues in verses 15 through 18. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill, the latter do so out of love, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But this is what he concludes. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now what's happening is that people were using Paul's situation of being imprisoned in Rome as an example to inspire faith in others, and it was working. As I mentioned, people were coming to faith in Christ in droves because God was using Paul's chains to advance the gospel. But according to people who were reporting back to Paul, some were preaching for impure motives or with impure motives. 
Maybe it was to build a bigger church for themselves or develop a more well-known reputation or even just earn more money. While Paul doesn't condone their motives, he doesn't dismiss it as all bad either. Why? Because God was still working. See, here's the thing. Cynics live with a general distrust of others and their motives. When we see someone do something good, maybe there's something in the cynic that thinks, you know, they must be doing that in order to earn more money, to show off, get more likes on social media, whatever it is. But optimists generally trust the motives of people who haven't done anything to lose that trust yet. Either way, because Paul was the ultimate defiant optimist, he was rejoicing regardless of motive because Christ was being preached, God was working. Henry Blackaby, who's the author of a book called Experiencing God, sold millions of copies, wrote these words, find out where God is working and then join him. See, this takes the pressure off to some degree. Our job is to ask where in our life is God working and moving and then join him. Now it takes spirit-filled eyes to see where God is working. It's not always easy to spot. But to live with defiant optimism, ask God to open your eyes today, this week, and ask, where are you working? And then go there. Now, what does that look like practically? Maybe, maybe you've been afraid to move. But if you keep sensing that God is asking you to move or change somewhere, change somewhere where he's working, then move or change. Maybe you've been afraid to stay because of all the reasons that things could go wrong if you stay, but you keep sensing that God is asking you to stay because, because he seems to be working here, so stay. Maybe there's a person in your life that you, you see God working in their life, but you haven't been able to fully trust him yet and have that conversation, but man, if you see God working in that person's life, go have that conversation. This week, ask, where are you working, God? and then go join him. Third question to ask to live with defiant optimism is to ask this question, how can I lift someone else up? Paul writes this in Philippians chapter two, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. One of the primary ways to live with more defiant optimism is in fact, to think about yourself less and others more. We tend to become more cynical and jaded the more we obsess about our issues, our problems, our circumstances. But when we think about others, it not only lifts them up, but brings us out of our cynical spiral as well. I can imagine those poor soldiers that Paul was chained to. Sure, Paul was chained to them, but they were chained to him. They couldn't escape him. And I can imagine that Paul got to know them personally. You know, tell me your story. Tell me a little bit about your life history. How about the names of your family members? Hey, what are some things you're struggling with? And then whether they wanted to hear it or not, he got to tell them about the greatest person who ever lived. The person who changed his life and transformed his heart, Jesus. Later in Philippians, Paul bragged about one of his spiritual protégés, Timothy, where he wrote this, I hope to send Timothy to, to you soon. I have no one else like him who will, what, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. 
For everyone seems to look out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy's different. Timothy has proved himself. See, Paul not only saw what kind of potential that Timothy had, but he also recognized that Timothy was now the kind of person who could help others too. The kind of person that that people want to be around are those who lift them up, not weigh them down. Well, I'm a pastor and a teacher. I'm also a leader of a team of people at the church I work at. And, And many of you are leaders as well. Leaders, if we lead with pessimism, our people will feel that burden. Our pessimism is literally weighing them down and it's keeping our workplace or our teams in chains. But if you lead with optimism, these people will feel unburdened and free to be more of who they were created to be. Leaders, you have immense potential to impact the lives of people in your workplace. But maybe you're not a leader that maybe you're a a parent or a grandparent, a teammate, a friend, a spouse. Cynicism and optimism are so weighty and contagious that they have the potential to spread to every person around you. So ask yourself, what are you gonna spread? One top level leader I used to work with said he never wanted to hire emotionally draining people. Why? Because the emotionally pessimistic ones were such a burden to carry. To live with defiant optimism, ask, how can I lift someone else up? Two ways to do this practically. First, do something for someone else, as simple as that. A mentor of mine once said that whenever you're feeling down or stuck in your own life, go do something for someone else. It not only lifts them up, but it'll lift you up as well. Second way is to lift others up by choosing to be a defiant optimist in your life, in your workplace, in your homes, so people around you don't feel the crushing weight of your pessimism. Fourth and final question to ask is this, how can I press on? How can I press on no matter my circumstances? Paul writes this, I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead with that lean, looking forward, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And when I read these verses and think about this context, I immediately thought of this video by this guy who ran the same speed with all kinds of different shoes. It's totally ridiculous. Take a look. Some of you know what you're doing now for your Sunday afternoon. You're going to go try that at home. It's like, oh, it's fun. No matter what kind of shoe he's wearing, he's running the same speed regardless. No matter what kind of circumstance you're experiencing, run the same speed regardless. 
Wherever you are at, we can all agree not a single one of us here today or online are facing the exact same circumstances. Not a single one of us. Some are experiencing a, a wayward child or a difficult child at home. Others are struggling to make ends meet. Some are, some are waiting for that phone call about next steps and what to do medically. Others seem to have no problems at all. They're just living in a sweet season right now. But whatever it is, no matter the circumstance, what impresses me about Paul is that he lived a life where he pressed on, no matter the circumstance, how by keeping his eyes on Jesus. That's why Paul could write these words, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I, I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or, or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he concludes, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. What was the secret? That Paul could press on, no matter the circumstance, that he could do all things. And why could he do that? Why could he press on no matter the circumstance? It was through, through him, by keeping his eyes on Jesus. Jesus alone has the power to help us do all things, to press on no matter the circumstances. And if you have a relationship with Jesus, and if you have faith in his saving power, then you, you can press on as well. Maybe today you need to be reminded of people like Catherine Wolf. See, at 26, Catherine, newly married with a brand new child, was about to finish law school and find her dream job. But at the same time, she suffered a massive, nearly catastrophic stroke that, that completely flipped her life upside down. But since then, for the last few decades, because of Jesus, she runs a nonprofit called Hope Heals that provides resources and encouragement to tens of thousands of people who suffer are in need. Or maybe it's to be reminded of people like Jasper and Amanda Nephew, good friends of mine, who have a daughter, adorable daughter named Ruby, who was diagnosed with adrenal cancer at 16 months. It's this genetic disorder that heightens the lifelong risk of recurrence of cancer. They face monthly uncertainty over what's next. Every time they show up for a doctor's appointment, every test that she has or scan she has to have. But because of Jesus, for the last several years, they continue to live with this faith-filled optimism, joy, and hope, and they they press on because of Jesus. Or this morning is just to be reminded of the story of Paul, who found himself wrongfully accused and imprisoned in chains, but found a way to press on and allow God to use his chains. Why? Because of Jesus. You want to live with defiant optimism? Here's my challenge to you this week. Read Philippians. There's four chapters, 104 verses total. It'll take most of you 15 minutes, some of you a few hours, but just different reading styles there. <laughs> but go home and read it. Do it sometime this week. Read it a chapter at a time or all in one sitting and see if God uses Paul's story to inspire you to become a defiant 
optimist? How? By keeping your eyes on Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of Paul. Thank you for how his life was impacted by Jesus and the fact that here we are 2,000 years later, still influenced and, and inspired by his life. And I know, God, there are people here who are really struggling and living in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances. And this isn't one of those messages just about being happy or smiling when you don't feel like it. No, it's not that, God. I pray that those people who are really struggling would find a way to discover your hope and to find a reason to be optimistic even in the midst of difficult circumstances. How do we do that? By keeping our eyes on you. And so all of us here, no matter where we're at, what's happening in our lives, I pray that this week we would lift our heads, we would focus our attention on you, God. And as we do, as we look at your son Jesus and all that he did for us and the way he lived and the way he suffered, as we keep our eyes focused on you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us those spirit-filled eyes to see the ways that you are working for the good in all circumstances. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that we get a chance to discover that, to look for that, to be people full of faith and hope. And I pray that you help us do that in Jesus' name. Amen.